There is a lot of hard to explain hypocrisy and rush taking place right now. And my experience around politics is that when you find hypocrisy in the daylight, look for power in the shadows. Okay. Well, look. I bet it's really easy to find at this point. Isn't it? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today uh i want we got a lot to get to today and i want to get to my guest because i got a lot to talk to her about today in particular so i'm gonna i just want to start jump in here where we left off from yesterday's broadcast as we have had some good news developments since then on some of the stories that we have been covering oh good uh, yeah we could use some right (laughs) so we'll have some good news before everything turns a little bit darker with my guest but at the end of yesterday's show um i covered the statewide outage on tuesday in virginia the last day for voter registration in the state this year Uh, A statewide outage of their entire online voter registration system thanks to a fiber optic cable, a big one, that was said to have been accidentally severed by maintenance workers on the last day of voter registration. The uh, last day of voter registration in any state is generally a very busy day for registration since so many people put things off to the last minute. Desi Doyen and um, (laughs) and voting rights groups, of course, push that day's deadline hard on social media, etc. So uh, yesterday, both the state's governor, Ralph Northam, and state attorney general, Mark Herring, both Democrats said that they were in favor of extending the deadline to make up for the outage on that important day for registration, but that state law does not allow them to do so. A court would have to to order such an extension. Well, 
Good news. A federal judge on Wednesday granted a 48-hour extension for voter registration in Virginia. Oh, good. U.S. District Judge John Gibney Jr. in Richmond said the order will reopen both online and in-person voter registration until midnight, actually until 11.59 p.m. on Thursday night. Got that, Virginia voters? Or would-be voters? You got until midnight Thursday night. And those of you who are already registered in Virginia, you got until Thursday night to let everyone that you know in the state that they now have until Thursday at midnight to register to vote in this year's critical election. All right? Get busy, folks in Virginia. The judge said that the shutdown of the state's website caused, quote, tremendous harm to people who want to register to vote. According to AP, CNN said that uh, without the extension order, almost an entire day of voter registration will be lost, according to the judge. His order came after uh, AG Mark Herring issued a statement on Tuesday night urging the extension, noting that the November election was 21 days out. and He wanted to make sure that every Virginian who wants to vote has that opportunity. Well, now they do, hopefully, and hopefully Virginia has learned that it's a good idea this year and every election year, in fact, to have backup plans for everything. They had no backup plan for that cable getting cut as it ran the entire voter registration system for the state, apparently. And this is not the first time that technical problems affected Virginians' ability to register to vote under a deadline. And back in 2016, an unknown number of people were also not able to register because of unprecedented demand as the uh, uh, deadline loomed, uh, in part because of social media postings reminding everyone of the deadline that year. The uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, which filed a 2016 lawsuit on the voter uh, group's behalf, swiftly condemned state officials for the disruption once again this Tuesday, Kristen Clark, the executive director of the uh, Lawyers Committee, said, quote, this error is particularly astounding, given that the same problem occurred at virtually the same time back in 2016. It is astonishing that Virginia has not learned from failures of the not so distant past. Well, uh, hopefully they got it this time. Though I'm not holding my breath, but uh, hey, there's a there's a bit of good news for you That's for the moment. That's great news, yeah. Uh, and hey, more good news from wait, this can't be from Texas. What, Desi? Did you sneak this in here? <laughs> this is <clears throat> yes. Please give me some good news. Good about Texas. news about Texas, where the uh, young 34 year old recently appointed election director in Harris County, that's Houston by all measures so far, is doing one hell of a good job making voting easier in the nation's third largest election jurisdiction. Harris County is Houston. There's a population of 4.7 million people there. And the new county clerk, Chris Hollins, appears to be doing a fantastic job with new coming up with new ways for voters to vote, especially during a pandemic, ways to vote and to keep them safe. That, even though the county still uses 100% unverifiable touchscreen-styled voting systems. I say touchscreen-styled because they actually have a dial on them they it, rather than a touchscreen. Uh, they use the dial to select your vote on the screen. 
But still, they uh, work or don't work pretty much the same way and are equally unverifiable as the touchscreen systems. But none of that is Hollins's fault. Those systems were chosen for the county by the county years ago. Hollins just came into the job over the summer and he's working with whatever he's got to work with at this point as Republicans in the state challenge just about everything that he has tried to do to make voting easier and safer for voters in this huge county. To that end, he had another win in court today, a lawsuit filed by the Republicans who run the state Monday night challenging Harris County's plans to operate drive through voting sites during the pandemic. That case has already been thrown out by the court, according to the Texas Tribune, thrown out just two days after it was filed. Uh, just in the first day that the drive through voting options was available to Harris County voters, this was the first day of early voting on Tuesday, more than 11,000 voters utilized it, according to Hollins's office. 11,000 voters used curbside voting? In one day. Wow. drive through voting, yeah. The court knocked the uh, state Republican Party for waiting until the month after the curbside voting plans became known before they filed their court petition on the night before early voting was to start in Houston. Monday's suit came after the Republican Governor Greg Abbott had already limited to just one per county the locations where voters could submit mail-in ballots in person, which are already greatly restricted in the state. It's one of only about five or six, I believe, that have uh, success, successfully been able to prevent voters from requesting absentee ballots due to fear of catching COVID. And that has forced millions of voters the uh, choice of not voting at all or risking their lives by waiting it out in potentially infected polling places to cast their votes this year. Given that some voters faced hours-long lines on Tuesday in parts of Texas just to be able to vote... Uh, being able to do so from one's car seems like a pretty smart idea, if you ask me. Additionally, the Texas GOP itself previously sued their own Republican governor, Greg Abbott, for his move to allow early in-person vote in-person voting to begin a week earlier than usual this year because of the uh, of the pandemic. And yes, that is how much Republicans in the state want to make it harder to vote during a pandemic. They are willing to sue their own Republican governor for expanding early voting by just one week. Hey, the voters aren't going to suppress themselves. Apparently not. Given that Donald Trump is, is now uh, currently up by less than a point and a half over Joe Biden in the Lone Star State, according to the most recent polling averages from 538.com, well, it is little wonder that Texas Republicans are now panicking. Also, too, I should note, Republican Senator John Cornyn is facing an unexpectedly tight challenge from Democratic challenger M.J. Hagar in a state which has not elected a Democrat for president or pretty much anything else statewide since something like 1976. So, yeah, they are panicking. And, yeah, they do not care if people die so that they can hang on to power as 
tenuously as they uh, are now doing so in the state of uh, in the state of Texas. Democratic leaning Harris County has been a flashpoint in pandemic fights around voting. The county was sued over Holland's uh, uh, county clerk Chris Holland's plan to proactively mail absentee ballot applications to all voters. That was eventually blocked by the all-Republican state Supreme Court in Texas, naturally. And thanks to the uh, recent directive from Abbott for only one drop-off site per county, uh, that was upheld by the appellate courts after a lower court judge had initially blocked it, finding it to be an infringement on the right to vote. But Harris County, thanks to that ruling, has had to already had to reduce the number of locations for in-person voting, in-person mail drop off from 12 planned sites to just one in a county that is geographically larger than the entire state of Rhode Island and larger in population than many entire states. So the latest Republican lawsuit had charged that Harris County clerk Chris Hollins was violating state law by operating a drive through voting site throughout his county. Harris County is planning to offer 10 drive through voting sites where in-person voters can stay in their cars while an election worker checks their ID, lets them operate a voting machine through the window. I wish it was a hand-marked paper ballot they were operating through the window rather than a voting machine, but we will take what we can get at this point, especially since it's not easy to ask for a hand-marked paper absentee ballot in the state now. In a statement about the suit, the Texas Democratic Party said the state GOP and Abbott uh, and the Republican-dominated state Supreme Court were, quote, cowards for attempting to quash every opportunity to vote that is not exactly the same as it was in 1900. But the uh, state uh, Dem Party chair said it won't work. Right now, millions of Texans across the state are doing everything in their power to make their voices heard. This terrifies Texas Republicans because they know Texans are fed up, he said. So uh, Clerk Hollins, for his part, uh, noted in a statement that his office has worked had worked with the Texas Secretary of State, Ruth Hughes, who is a Republican as well, to set up these drive through sites in a way that would, quote, ensure the integrity of the program. But that did not stop the Republicans from suing anyway. Hollins said we are pleased with the court's decision to not entertain this ridiculous attempt to disenfranchise thousands of Harris County voters. So, see, good news there, even in Texas. All right, one more, uh, one more bit of good voting news uh, before things may turn dark. <laughs> At least we'll turn to dark money here on the broadcast. Oh, I see what you did there. Alaskans do not need to have a second person sign their absentee ballots, according to the Alaska Supreme Court this week, confirming a lower court decision. A record number of Alaskans are voting absentee this year for some reason, and improper or insufficient witnessing has long been the top reason for rejected absentee ballots in the state over the past few primary elections, according to the State Division of Elections. State law ordinarily requires absentee voters to sign their ballots and get the signature of a witness who is at least 18 years of age or older. 
But a group of Alaskans sued last month to pause the witness requirement during the pandemic, according to the Anchorage Daily News. The witness requirements will now not be enforced this year, though ballots written instructions will still say that a second signature is required. More than 111,000 Alaska voters, and that's a lot for uh, the state of Alaska. Yeah, which is 700,000 people, yeah. so yep. something around there. Uh, they have uh, so now 111 voters have requested absentee ballot. Tens of thousands have already been mailed to voters. And as of today, I checked the website just before air. Almost 18,000 have already been voted and returned to the state division of elections. The division also said that nothing prohibits a voter from having their ballot witnessed, but a ballot will be counted with or without a witness signature as long as it meets all other requirements and as long as the Alaska Supreme Court ruling stands. Last month, the tribal government of Arctic Village, the League of Women Voters of Alaska, and two older women who are vulnerable to COVID, they sued the state, saying the second signature requirement does not make sense during a pandemic. Anchorage Superior Court Judge uh, Danny Crosby agreed, ruling on October 5 that during the pandemic, the requirement impermissibly burdens the right to vote. And now the state Supreme Court agrees after the state's chief election official, that would be Republican Lieutenant Governor Kevin Meyer, quickly appealed that lower court ruling. Now, thankfully, Meyer and uh, the state has lost Natalie Landreth of the Native American Rights Fund noted that the unincorporated Native American Arctic Village in the Yukon Territory, for example, is under a strict COVID quarantine, which means getting a witness signature uh, would require you to break quarantine and essentially break the law in Arctic Village in order to vote. Alaska's witness signature requirement would have forced interaction on those who live alone, are immunocompromised, or have been self-isolating since the beginning of the pandemic, according to the group. The uh, Alaska's highest court did what lieutenant, the lieutenant governor refused to do. It ruled to protect the most fundamental right in our democracy, the right to vote. Instead, he spent thousands of taxpayer dollars fighting to protect the witness signature requirement, which does nothing more than suppress voters and muzzle voices. That, according to the ACLU of Alaska executive director and an attorney with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law said no Alaska voter will have to sacrifice their health and well-being to cast their vote this November. This ruling is another victory in the fight against voter suppression efforts. By the way, I should note here that the Cook Political Report shifted its rating in the U.S. Senate race in Alaska yesterday, just as they did in the Texas Senate race. They shifted uh, from the incumbent uh, in Alaska from the incumbent Republican Governor uh, Dan Sullivan. Governor, you mean senator. Uh, so thank you. Republican Senator Dan Sullivan toward uh, the uh, Democrat. Well, actually, the independent challenger, Al Gross, who is challenging Sullivan for that Senate seat. He is endorsed by the state Democratic Party. Cook political report shifted the race on Tuesday from likely Republican to lean Republican 
just as they did with the Texas Senate race as well. So, yes, every vote counts this year, or at least it's supposed to. And now a few more of them will actually be counted in the state of Alaska. Now, since this is a state Supreme Court ruling, the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court will probably stay out of it since it is a, an issue of state law. But the Trump campaign and the Republican Party have indeed already asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review and intercede in a ruling by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on a number of issues where the state court in Pennsylvania made it easier for voters to vote. I don't believe that the Supremes, the uh, U.S. Supremes, have yet decided if they will take that up or not. They usually don't. They usually stay out of state law cases. But now, well, we have a new stolen Supreme Court who could do anything at this point. And in fact, it is becoming more stolen by the day. Yes, in fact, by dark money groups who, as uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse pointed out on Tuesday during the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett, are pulling strings that we now clearly have evidence of, but that few people know about. That story and a guest who has spent years investigating what Senator Whitehouse revealed in yesterday's hearings. All of that is coming up next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. While Joe Biden and the Democrats are playing their cards pretty close to the vest as to whether they will expand the U.S. Supreme Court if they are able to win back both the White House and Senate majority this November in response to the GOP theft and, yes, court packing of the high court and, by the way, of the lower federal courts over the past four years, there is only one of the two major parties that have actually created an entire industry out of, yes, packing the federal courts. A multi-million dollar industry, a multi-million dollar interlocking industry, in fact, and that would be the Republican Party. For years, as Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island pointed out during Tuesday's Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, attempting to ram through the nomination and lifetime appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to fill the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the highest court in the land. No Supreme Court vacancy has ever been filled this close to an election. And, of course, it comes amid rank hypocrisy from Senate Republicans who, in 2016, refused to even give Judge Merrick Garland, that was Barack Obama's nominee, a meeting at all, much less a hearing or a floor vote after Justice Scalia died in February of that year. 
Republicans at the time claimed it was just too late in a presidential election year to have time to seat someone on the court and that the American people should have a voice in such an appointment and that from then on they would never seat someone on the court during a presidential election year. That was the Republicans' new rule. Well, that GOP rule held up for exactly zero additional presidential election years as they now try to jam the hard right Barrett through the confirmation process before Election Day, despite millions of Americans already uh, in the voting process right now, with more than 10 million already having cast their ballots this year. But having done away with the filibuster for justices in order to push Neil Gorsuch onto the bench back in 2017 when they couldn't get him through after blocking Garland for a full year, there is little to stop the seating of Barrett now either at this point, given the uh, radical re- giving the radical Republicans a six to three advantage on the Supreme Court, unless it is reformed with seats added by Democrats next year. You know, the way Mitch McConnell sort of reformed the court to just eight seats for an entire year in 2016. And the way Republicans are expanding state Supreme Courts around the country, even as we speak, to try and gain a majority on them. On this show, we have largely ignored the goings on in the Senate Judiciary Committee for the past several days as Barrett faced day three of her hearings on Wednesday, led by committee chair and king of the hypocrites, Lindsey Graham, while the Senate is otherwise shut down completely due to the covid crisis because well you know it's a completely illegitimate exercise and so we have not spent a lot of time on it would rather spend time making sure that voters can vote this year that's of paramount importance as i see it in order to correct this illegitimate seating and many others carried out by republicans over the past four years so i have been spending Uh, Much more of our time uh, on the public airwaves that way instead, similarly refusing to play along with the Republicans rushed confirmation hearings on Tuesday. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse spent his half hour largely ignoring Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett in favor of ripping down the curtain on the influences behind her nomination and behind so many other Republicans nominated to both the Supreme Court and the lower federal courts over many recent years. I guess the reason I want to do this is because people who are watching this need to understand that this small hearing room and the little TV box you are looking at are a little bit like the frame of a puppet theater White House opened, And said, if you only look at the puppet theater, you are certainly not going to understand forces outside of this room who are pulling strings and pushing sticks and causing the puppet theater to react. With that, White House pulled out markers and a stack of visual aids and spent the next 30 minutes showing how extreme right wing activist groups, including the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network, how they all interact and influence behind the scenes with huge money and a hand in every stage of the judicial nominee process from selection to confirmation to decisions on the bench itself in key cases that the same dark money funded folks uh, who chose the judges in the first place then helped to get before the court with manufactured cases, hoping to move forward their political agenda 
with activist judicial rulings from the bench. White House shone a light on the deep ties between this system and the Republican Party itself, even calling out by name some of his fellow committee members who are a part of it. Here are some of his remarks on Tuesday revealing the puppeteers behind the court-packing puppet show curtain. We have some very awkward 180s from colleagues. Mr. Chairman, you figure in this. Uh, Our leader um, said back when it was Garland versus uh, Gorsuch that, of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. Of course, of course, said Mitch McConnell. That's long gone. Senator Grassley said the American people shouldn't be denied a voice. That's long gone. Senator Cruz said, you don't do this in an election year. That's long gone. And our chairman made his famous hold the tape promise, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term, we'll wait till the next election. That's gone too. So there is a lot of hard to explain hypocrisy and rush taking place right now. And my experience around politics is that when you find hypocrisy in the daylight, look for power in the shadows. Now, people may say, well, what does all this matter? This is a political parlor game. It's no big deal. Well, there's some pretty high stakes here that we've been talking about uh, here on, the, on our side. And I'll tell you three of them right here. Roe versus Wade. Obergefell, and the Obamacare cases. In all cases, there's big anonymous money behind various lanes of activity. One lane of activity is through the conduit of the Federalist Society. So we have an anonymously funded group controlling judicial selection run by this guy, Leonard Leo. Then in another lane, we have, again, anonymous funders running through something called the Judicial Crisis Network which is run by Carrie Severino, and it's doing PR and campaign ads for Republican judicial nominees. And then over here, you have a whole array of legal groups, also funded by dark money, which have a different role. They bring cases to the court. They don't wind their way to the court, Your Honor. They get shoved to the court by these legal groups, many of which ask to lose below so they can get quickly to the court to get their business done there. And then they turn up in a chorus, an orchestrated chorus of amici. The Federalist Society that is acting as the conduit and that Donald Trump has said is doing his judicial selection, they're getting money from the same foundations. From Donors Trust, $16.7 million. From the Bradley Foundation, $1.37 million. Center for Media and Democracy has done a little bit more research. Here's a Bradley Foundation memo that they've published. The Bradley Foundation is reviewing a grant application asking for money for this orchestrated amicus process. And what do they say in the staff recommendation? It is important to orchestrate, their word, not mine, important to orchestrate high-caliber amicus efforts uh, before the court. This, more and more, looks... Like, it's not three schemes, but it's one scheme.
with the same funders selecting judges, funding campaigns for the judges, and then showing up in court in these orchestrated amicus flotillas to tell the judges what to do. Here's how the Washington Post summed it up. This is a conservative activist behind the scenes campaign to remake the nation's courts, and it's a $250 million dark money operation. $250 million is a lot of money to spend if you're not getting anything for it. So that raises the question, what are they getting for it? Well, I showed the slide earlier on the Affordable Care Act and on Obergefell and on Roe versus Wade. That's where they lost. But with another judge, that could change. That's where the contest is. That's where the Republican Party platform tells us to look at how they want judges to rule to reverse Roe to reverse the Obamacare cases, and to reverse Obergefell and take away gay marriage. That is their stated objective and plan. Why not take them at their word? Why not indeed? Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island explaining uh, the complicated web of this uh, court-packing industry from the right uh, that runs through dark money. Uh, there, there's certainly uh, more than enough evidence laying out White House's case there, which we sort of had to truncate. It's a 30-minute case he made. We tried to truncate it and make sense of it. Uh, but much of that evidence that he, he cited was brought forward by the Center for Media and Democracy, who you heard him mention there. And my guest coming up momentarily, who previously led the CMD, will join us momentarily. White House rounded out his presentation by highlighting the track record of wins in some of these cases that were brought to the high court with the aid of this right wing dark money uh, to bring these cases before these judges that these very same groups and that very same dark money helped to seat on the bench in the first place noting that uh, their victory record to date is 80 to nothing with a bare five to four partisan majority on the court for those cases. So imagine what will happen when the court becomes six to three after Amy Coney Barrett is jammed through this process before the election. Let me take a quick break here and we will come back with the woman responsible for uncovering much of that dark money uh, directly highlighted there by Senator Whitehouse. She also happens to be a former chief counsel of nominations in the U.S. Senate, a former deputy chief for the U.S. court system and a former deputy assistant U.S. attorney general. So she has much light to offer in this dark conversation and arguably these even darker times. Lisa Graves of True North Research joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. Follow the money. 
Good advice. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Joining us now is our friend Lisa Graves, who served as executive director at the Center for Media and Democracy, or CMD, where she still serves as president of their board of directors. Lisa and CMD, the nonpartisan good government watchdog group, uh, was cited in that clip by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on Tuesday that we played before the break from his remarks during Amy Coney Barrett's nomination hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee regarding the full-blown, huge-dollar, right-wing, dark-money industry that not only selects judges for the federal courts, but then spends huge amounts of money to campaign for their seating and then even more money to find cases to push to the Supreme Court to get rulings on key right-wing objectives, during which they flood the court with amici briefs to help the justices decide these cases in their favor. It is an industry to, yes, pack the courts and get the decisions they want from them. Lisa Graves and the Center for Media and Democracy uncovered a lot of those dark money puppet strings that Senator Whitehouse referred to and that are used to pack the courts and bring right wing cases to them while she served as the group's executive director for about eight years. She's now executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org and is uniquely suited to comment on all of this, including the Barrett nomination specifically as she served as a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice, a Deputy Chief for the U.S. Court System, and, as luck would have it, as the former Chief Counsel for nominations in the U.S. Senate. Oh, Lisa Graves, welcome back to the broadcast. Oh, Brad, it's nice to be on your show. It's always I really appreciate the invitation. <laughs> always great to have you here, Lisa. Uh, given your background, I could call you for just about any topic, but this one in particular, you're uniquely seated, uh, suited to speak to. Uh, how did the White House do there on Tuesday? He had 30 minutes in full. We couldn't play it all. Uh, how did he do in exposing so much of what you have helped to expose over the years? But this time... Uh, it was done on the floor of the Senate Judiciary Committee during a much-watched uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearing. Well, I have to say that Senator Whitehouse is one of my heroes. You know, he is is uh, personally personally passionate about the protection of the courts, of having fair courts, and he has devoted a substantial amount of time, including writing a book called Captured, about how these dark money groups have captured our courts. And I think what happened this week during this uh, hearing about the Supreme Court nomination was very, very important because he he's able to use this forum to shine a light on something that most Americans have no idea mm-hmm. is going on as part of this capture of our courts, which is really about changing our rights and doing it through judicial fiat. Mm-hmm. And so I was certainly honored that he mentioned the organization that I lead mm-hmm. in his in his questions and and referred to some of the materials that I have written about regarding the Bradley Foundation and the amicus brief that they have uh, secretly funded to go to the court and help orchestrate helped orchestrate these decisions uh, and these this amicus strategy and so I I think that if if your listeners have a chance it really is worth going to C-SPAN and checking out the full clip. Mm-hmm. There's a separate clip there. People can just see that part. There's obviously other parts of that hearing and questioning that are also important. But that 30 minutes is really a, a class, a course, 
on understanding this this puppet show that we're seeing with this nomination of who's really calling the shots, um, how this is happening, and I'm excited to talk with you more about that here today. It, it, and I will definitely link to that full uh, speech from uh, from White House, those 30-minute remarks, uh, as well as your coverage at exposedbycmd.org this week, where you uh, where you spell out much of what he also uh, uh, showed during his uh, uh, remarks, along with links, uh, to, you know, with, with all of the evidence. It is there, but you're right, very few people know about it. Lisa, I started uh, all of this by describing... This entire conspiracy, and it really is a conspiracy, if not necessarily a criminal one, I described it as a right-wing extremist court-packing industry. Is that a fair description as you see it, or am I going too far in describing it that way? I thought you did a very nice job, Brad, of tying together these strings and summarizing it. You know, I, I think one of the things that people don't realize is how this Supreme Court, the modern Supreme Court, operates. And so there are a couple things that I think are important to um, lift up. Mm-hmm. One is that the U.S. Supreme Court has very little of what's known as original jurisdiction, meaning cases that it has to take. Almost all of the cases that it decides to hear are matters of choice, it's basically mm-hmm. totally within the discretion of a majority of the justices on that court. There's mm-hmm. a thing called the rule of four, where if four of the nine justices uh, vote to hear a case, then that case is one that the court will hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and usually you only have a vote of four um, if you think you've got the fifth vote or maybe a sixth vote in order to have issue a ruling in that case. So mm-hmm. basically what's happening is with this domination of the court before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death last month, there were often four or five of the members of the Republican-appointed majority who could decide which cases they wanted to take. So it's no accident that the Supreme Court chose to take the case of Citizens United Mm -hmm. and issue a ruling that gutted the ability of Congress to regulate this outside dark money and really unleash this tsunami of dark money in our elections that has also infected judicial appointments as well as judicial elections. It's no coincidence that suddenly that court decided to take up the Shelby County case on voting rights Mm -hmm. and gut the Voting Rights Act, yep. and basically assert that in this day and age, with all the voter suppression that we've seen on the rise since President Obama was first elected in 2008, um, that suddenly we no longer needed those protections uh, of the Voting Rights Act uh, in the preclearance states. And, and I would add, by the way, uh, to folks that did not hear our previous broadcast, you may want to go back and give it a listen because we talked very much about that uh, Shelby case and uh, Judge Antonin Scalia's extraordinary hypocrisy in it uh, after he claims to be a constitutional conservative, a textualist, an originalist who follows every word of the, the law and the Constitution, even if he doesn't like it. I spent some time on that yesterday because Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who clerked for Scalia actually uh, cited his judicial philosophy as her judicial philosophy, even though his judicial philosophy, as I uh, went to great lengths to detail yesterday, was pretty much a lie as shown by that Shelby County case that gutted the Voting Rights Act. You can download that from bradblog.com. But Lisa, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Citizens United here because I wanted to ask, how long has this been going on according to your timeline? And I'm asking because people don't realize that all the way back to the very controversial seating 
of the hard right Justice Clarence Thomas, a George H.W. Bush nominee, uh, which it should be noted was aided in no small part at the time by the uh, then Democratic chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a guy by the name of Joe Biden, that even back then, millions of dollars was spent unilaterally on TV ads to support Thomas's nomination by a so-called nonpartisan group that has the name Citizens United. That's the actual group for which the infamous uh, Supreme Court ruling allowing for the flood of dark money uh, is named and that, yes, Clarence Thomas helped to decide after that group, Citizens United, actually got them, got him, helped get him onto the Supreme Court. They were plaintiffs in that case. Does this conspiracy that White House outlined and that you've been reporting on for so long go back that far? Well, there are a couple things in there, Brad. So first of all, I thought your program on Scalia was brilliant and so important because of, as you said, the role that Amy Coney Barrett claims that he has played in shaping her approach to law. As you pointed out, uh, in essence, uh, Justice Scalia wrote opinions as if he were an an op-ed writer for the Wall Street Journal's much-discredited editorial page. Mm -hmm. And he often you know, basically injected his own views and decisions while masking it as some sort of neutral philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and only on, only on rare occasions did he actually uh, describe somehow ro- um, voting against his supposed conscience. But the fact is that right. um, this fight has been going on for a long time. And, and what we've seen is, um, you know, the, the money part of it uh, is really in the last few decades. Mm-hmm. But the broader arc of it uh, is, is worth noting. So, in, in my view, what one of the things that has happened in the United States is that in the 1950s and 1960s, and part of, part of the 40s, we finally had a Supreme Court that was willing to actually enforce the terms of the Constitution, like equal protection of the law in the 14th Amendment by issuing the Brown versus Board of Education decision, mm-hmm. striking down segregation, which is obviously, obviously an affront mm-hmm. to that phrase, equal protection of the law. Similarly, we had a court that was willing to say, in the case of Gideon v. Wainwright, you have a right to counsel. Oh, that means you actually have a right to counsel. <laughs> um, you have a, a court, that court, the Warren Court, that was um, led by a Republican, former Republican governor of California. Um, that court issued a decision in Baker v. Carr that said, you know what, if we're a republic that is a representative democracy, that means one person, one vote. One person, one vote. That's essential to actually having a democracy. Those decisions were reviled by the far right, mm. reviled by uh, groups like the Burt John Burt Society mm-hmm. and others, the Goldwater Movement and more. And uh, Richard Nixon ran <clears throat> for the White House in part on this law and order campaign mm-hmm. that was an attack on those decisions. That was sort of the beginning of this attack on the judiciary in this particular way. And then Ronald Reagan came in basically, basically with a litmus test on supposed law and order and also on abortion. And, you know, had a limit for choosing who was getting on the Supreme Court, including people like Justice Scalia. And so when by the time that Thomas was appointed, and he was a very controversial person, he was only in his early 40s, mm-hmm. he'd barely been a judge, and he obviously was subject to evidence uh, in the form of in-person testimony under oath of his misconduct, mm-hmm. uh, sexual misconduct in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was buttressed by advertisements paid by, you know, shadowy groups, mm-hmm. as you point out. And that was, you know, one of, the, one of the beginnings of that. Obviously, there was a controversy a few years earlier about Robert Bork, who was an extremist, who I think 
in some ways, um, uh, Amy Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh really are following in the shoes of Bork in mm-hmm. terms of their extreme ideology. Mm-hmm. But this fight has been going on for a long time. But the, the broader picture of that, in a way, is in my lifetime, in the past 52 years, there have been 15 judicial nominations confirmed to the United States Supreme Court by Republican presidents, and only four by Democratic presidents. So this court has been packed. Part of that is due to just the hand of fate in terms of when people die, Mm -hmm. but part of it has not been to the hand of fate at all. Because, for example, if Justice Merrick Garland were confirmed to the seat of Justice Scalia when he died in 2016, right now the court would be a a 4-4 court. Mm -hmm. And if this vacancy that just arose with Justice Ginsburg's death so soon before the election were not voted on, as mm-hmm. has been the historical case for presidential elections uh, for, you know, basically the entire history of the United States, mm-hmm. then this court could very well be a 5-4 court with nominees of Democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. But for this this effort by the Republicans to pack this court. But, it, bro- but broader than that, let me just, just add one mm-hmm. quick thing, which sure. is that this court has almost 8,000 cases that come to it every year saying, please hear my case. And it only issues decisions in 80 of those cases, about Mm -hmm. 80 cases a year. And those are cases that the majority, which is now a Republican-appointed majority, decides it wants to take. And it is deciding to take cases that strip us of our rights. And again, that's a decision made by just four of the justices. And Amy Coney Barrett has shown herself willing to uh, strip us of our rights in pretty much every case uh, that she has uh, uh, had a voice in over her short career now as a federal judge for the past uh, two or three years. Lisa, I've got just a few minutes left, but I want to hit uh, several questions here. First, is there any equivalent on the Democratic side of the ledger uh, to this, uh, you know, this this dark money court packing scheme on the right? Um, do do Democrats have a federal judge assembly line, a pipeline system to see progressive judges and uh, seated and bring cases before the court that liberals have an interest in? And if they do not, should they? I don't really think that there's any equivalent at all uh, on the left. And I would say, um, in some ways, I'm appreciative of that because of the unseemliness of what's been happening here. You have a situation where Leonard Leo, who was the vice president of Federal Society, is now the co-chair of the Federal Society's board. Actually, during the year that Kavanaugh was nominated and confirmed, was getting money from outside sources whose identities are unknown. He has never filed a financial disclosure form for the White House, his, his aiding of the White House, because he's not a federal employee, so we don't know the sources of income. Mm-hmm. But suddenly that year, he was able to pay off his mortgage on his house in Virginia. And also that year, literally on the eve of the confirmation vote of Brett Kavanaugh, 24 hours before his, nom- his nomination was approved, Leonard Leo closed on a mansion in Maine with 12 bedrooms across from the Yacht Club. Wow. So he's getting rich while basically selecting who Donald Trump selected. From. Wow. And there should be an investigation of that. Who are the sources of his funding? And also, who are the sources of the big multi-million dollar grants, like mm-hmm. the $17 million grant that went from one one entity mm-hmm. to the Wellspring Committee and then to the Judicial Crisis Network, which spent millions yep. to try to push uh, Gorsuch onto the bench. And so we have a crisis. I don't want the Democrats to repeat that. It's certainly the case that there needs to be more recruitment of a diverse and broader judiciary that reflects America. 
but we should not repeat the utterly corrupt, in my personal view, corruption of the judicial selection process that we are seeing being manifested on the right. Uh, I don't know, Lisa. Maybe you and I picked the wrong careers. Sounds like there's an opening on the left that, uh, you know, we could we could each use a 12-room mansion somewhere. And uh, <laughs> I, so uh, let's rethink that later. Lisa, if, if uh, Barrett is seated, as now appears to be the most likely outcome here, uh, and frankly, even if she isn't seated, should the court, in your opinion, this is the question that Joe Biden won't answer. By the way, I think he should answer it because I think uh, then if he is elected with a, a Senate majority, a uh, Democratic Senate majority, then he can claim he's got a mandate to do this. But if she is, uh, uh, whether she is seated or not, should the court be expanded, in your opinion, uh, if uh, Biden is elected and if Democrats get the majority? And if so, what kind of... Uh, expansion or reform would you like to see uh, at, uh, at at least the Supreme Court, maybe even the lower federal courts as well? Should they be expanded? Well, I was going to say cleaning 12 bedrooms and possibly, you know, a half a dozen bathrooms sounds like a curse to me, by the way. Well, but... we, we would have the money. We would have plenty of money to afford a maid <laughs> oh, oh, to take care of all of that. that. Yeah, that's I right. Don't worry about, about that. that. We'll get that I taken care of. About yeah. That. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, here, here here's the reality is that this court, with so many more clerks for these judges, and the advent of computers is hearing less cases than the Supreme Court did when they were typing decisions on typewriters. Mm. So, really? uh, and hearing fewer cases, wow. and, and having more appeals for people to hear their cases. Mm-hmm. So I actually think there needs to be a, a serious consideration of expanding the, um, uh, the federal appellate courts, including the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. to deal with the caseload that the courts have, and also to roll back these restrictions on class actions and more, uh, this push of people into arbitration with their phone contracts and standard form contracts mm-hmm. that are denying people the basic civil right to a jury that our Constitution protects so that people can actually use the courts and have fair judges and have judges that reflect the, the, their, the, their communities, our communities, and not just predominantly corporate lawyers mm-hmm. who become judges or former federal prosecutors who become judges. We need to have a, a judiciary that has a demonstrable devotion to the rights of ordinary people so they can uh, hear cases fairly, have some experience not just being on one side or having a narrow set of views. And quite frankly, um, one of the things about Judge Barrett that's particularly troubling is how insular and narrow her views are, how readily she, she's willing to disregard the impacts of her decisions on ordinary people in the, in the, in the very little time she's already been mm-hmm. on the bench. We don't need judges who have such narrow views. We need judges who have a deep and fundamental commitment to justice and equal justice in the law for all people, for ordinary people, and not to put their thumb on the scale of justice on the side of corporations or on the side of a narrow, um, narrow minority mm-hmm. who share their views and their effort to change the rights of people, including the rights of women in this country, but of all people. Yeah, and I, so I hope we. I hope that the judiciary is expanded and is more diverse and is more reflective of our society, and and not that it's packed with more and more of these right wing justices, some of whom are just right wing bloggers getting jobs, lifetime jobs on the bench. Hey, hey, easy going against the bloggers there, Lisa. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, no, I, I hear you, <laughs> but, but you know, 
I, I like a judge to have a little experience being a judge before they get a lifetime gig as a judge. That's my point. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, by the way, I, I couldn't help but notice when she was asked, when Barrett was asked some very simple questions, you know, things like, is it unlawful to uh, intimidate people at the polling place? And, you know, similar, that should have been softball questions that she said, well, if I uh, heard such a case, I'd have to look into it. I'd have to check the law. I'd have to talk to my colleagues. I would have to talk to stakeholders. I have a feeling she couldn't answer some of those questions because it's those stakeholders who are actually the ones pulling the strings that uh, White House, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, and that you, Lisa Graves, have, Graves, have been trying to uh, expose for so long. So um, keep up the good work. Thank you for all you do. Lisa Graves is the executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org. She is the president of the board of directors at the Center for Media and Democracy. You can find her work at ExposedByCMD.org. She has a whole bunch of other credits that we don't have time for, but we will talk about uh, the next time she is back, which I hope is very soon. Lisa Graves, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time today. Thank you, Brad, and thank you, Brad Blog. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> okay, I love Lisa Graves. I know. I love Lisa Graves, and not only because she said my uh, show yesterday was brilliant in my <laughs> rant about uh, Scalia. No, she, she's but so it, knowledgeable, she knows everything, it seems like. She does. She knows everything. She's been everywhere. Maybe she's the one pulling the strings in the dark <laughs> behind all of this. I don't know. Anyway, okay, we got to get out. Uh, thanks again, Lisa. Uh, and thanks to Desi Doy and our producer. And thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, like that one from yesterday, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. That is all thanks to those of you who support our efforts by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We could not continue to do what we do and badmouth all the people we badmouth and the corporations and the groups and everybody else uh, without your support. So thank you for stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and you will find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad blog. That is it. Until we meet again, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.